Those are the developments that politicians are reacting to, and sometimes because they have to do that, because a judge tells them to do it. But I think more broadly, because this is what society is increasingly asking from politicians. We, we cannot afford to wait longer. You just heard Marcel Beukeboom in his previous role as climate envoy of the Netherlands. In our second episode around COP26, Jeroen and Marcel explore the world of climate diplomacy and look back on Marcel's five-year term as the top climate diplomat for the Netherlands. The conversation was recorded in June 2021 and currently Marcel is the Dutch permanent representative to the United Nations in Rome. What makes this episode quite special is that Jeroen and Marcel have known each other for a long time. They both studied international relations, were being active in student politics and even debated each other on occasion. Since those early student years, both have taken different paths. But in this episode, they together look back on five years of climate negotiations at the highest international stage. We're really glad to have Marcel as our guest. With the COP26 unfolding, he gives us context and helps us to understand what really goes on inside the halls of the UN climate conferences, but also how this relates to our actions and daily lives as citizens, helping us to reflect on the question, how can we all be climate diplomats? I'm your host, Tom Weiman, and I'm glad that you're with us to discover your inner green deal. So let's jump right into Jeroen and Marcel's conversation. Good morning. Good morning, Marcel. Marcel, we've known each other for a long time. We studied international relations together. We were also both in student politics. And I'm really curious how that time prepared you for this, uh, for this role of climate envoy. But perhaps first for our listeners, what is a climate envoy and uh, what is your role exactly? Well, simply put, a climate envoy is representing his or her country at international meetings where we discuss or negotiate climate. But I think to add to that, it's interesting to know that I also do represent those international agreements nationally, because in this era of implementation, we should also act nationally. And, and that makes this an, an, a unique role, connecting the international to the national and agreements to action. And can you say something about that, though? So this national aspect of it, because from a distance, uh, if we look at the Netherlands, we sometimes have this impression that uh, the debate's quite polarized. So on the one hand, you have people who are quite progressive, and on the other hand, sort of more conservative, and it seems quite, uh, yeah, as I said, polarized. Would you agree with that? I think it is, it, it's true that it looks like that from the outside. That is perhaps also what media try to do, is, is look at the extremes. That makes mm -hmm. it interesting. But there's a large group in the middle that is actually getting into action and that, that is, first of all, se seeing and realizing that, that the climate crisis is real and that is urgent and that we have to do something about it, mm -hmm. but also that they see that both the government uh, and themselves can play a role in that or have to play a role in that. And uh, if you look at, at recent polls, both in the Netherlands, but also in other countries, Motivaction, for example, has done a poll in all G20 countries. And the majority of populations actually sees the issue and says we have to act. So, so that is the very solid base on which we can build. So you feel that there is a middle ground? If you now look beyond perception and at the facts, how would you say the Netherlands is, is doing you know, compared to its peers in, let's say, Europe? If we look at the agreements that are in uh, place at the moment, we look at the emission reduction in the EU of 40% in 2030. 
uh, that agreement, we are on track to reach that. But uh, as you perhaps also know, is that the bar has been raised since. So first to 49 and now just recently also to 55% emission reduction. Mm -hmm. And that means that we have to do more in the Netherlands. The, the climate agreement that was, was signed in 2018 was still aiming for 49%. Uh, and we also know that we had difficulties reaching that, but now we actually have to raise the bar even further. So that means that we have to come up with much more than we currently have in place. Mm -hmm. How difficult is that? Uh, can you give examples what needs to change? Maybe just as a, as a comparison. In, in 2018, all stakeholders in the Netherlands got together to, uh, to agree on that climate agreement. And they all chipped in what they could do themselves. And together we would land on that 49% if everything would work out. Hmm. Now that 55%, some might say, okay, that's only 6% more, so just uh, tweak it a little bit here and there, and then we're there. No, just you should realize that those 6% points actually mean a doubling of the climate agreement of 2018. That is what, what a commission has found out and advised the government on. And, and that is how difficult it is. So the next steps will definitely be more difficult. Now, if you compare that against other countries, like, I don't know, like neighboring countries, because it's a little bit abstract, right? Some of these percentages. How do you think it's doing really, you know, compared to, let's say, Germany or, or Denmark or Belgium? When we look back to, to 1990, the early 1990s, we globally agreed on the so-called Rio Conventions, setting out pathways for, for climate, for desertification, for biodiversity. Since then, Europe is, has really performed well. So our emissions have gone down ever since. So that is how we perform as, as the EU. But it's, of course, a global issue. And with us being as successful as that, our share of global emissions has gone down to, to approximately 8%. So, so that is where we are. The, the, the real big steps have to be taken elsewhere. So that means that we have a role to play in, in climate diplomacy. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the EU, we see that together we are doing well. But of course, there is a diversity between countries. Uh, some do better than others. A country like Denmark, for example, is really taking big steps. Uh, they also saw the economic opportunity of wind energy, for example. In Germany, you have seen that it's, it's a little bit of a, of a mixed picture. Mm -hmm. uh, on the one hand, making big steps in solar and wind, but on the other hand, also struggling to um, stop coal-fired power plants and actually the whole coal industry. So that is... Uh, perhaps a little bit of a mixed image. And in a country like France, which of course is also completely different, relying as they do on nuclear energy for a large part, the task is different. So it's very hard to compare countries. And that is why countries do have their individual targets. But together we do well. Mm -hmm. If I were to compare on the base of CO2 tons per capita, you know, is that a fair comparison? I think you should take two other things into account. The one is that indeed in Europe, we belong to the richer part of the world. So mm -hmm. our CO2 footprint per capita is high. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's one thing. So we have to do more. Yeah. And that is also what developing countries tell us. Right. You can ask us to reduce. No, you have to do that first. And that's mm -hmm. a fair point. A second thing is that we actually outsourced a lot of our emissions to other countries, for example, China. Yeah. And if, if you see 
consumerism as as core of this problem, you know that the, the global economy should be looked at as a whole. So we need a system change and not only say, okay, we in Europe now only have a very small share of global emissions. That's only partly true. We also have to take into account the global value change and, and the fact that we are spending our euros elsewhere to have them produce our consumer goods. So that is how complicated it is. You're now at the end of your tenure as a, as a climate envoy. And uh, the last five years have been very fascinating, I think, in terms of change. We first had, of course, the Paris Agreement uh, and then a number of other ch dynamics. And I wonder if we can put that a little bit in the context of um, what we debated as students. You remember, we had this class with Professor Fulton, and we were asked to debate, you and me, what are the main drivers of history? And I remember you defending the position that broad societal trends drive history. And, and I argued that uh, individual people and leaders change the course of history. Now, from your privileged view as a climate envoy, how would you answer that question now? And specifically, what would you say have been the main drivers of climate negotiations over the past five years? I, I think I would now answer that qu question as uh, perhaps both sides play a role. Mm. Uh, let me first start by the, the societal changes that, that occur. Going back to 2015, so perhaps a little bit of, of optimism globally that with President Obama in his second term, not too many global conflicts, the economy doing well, uh, but also after a period of, of several not so successful climate summits, Paris had to be a success. On top of that, we had several terrorist attacks also in Paris at that moment. So people felt that, okay, we cannot fail at this summit. Mm. Of course, that's history now. We know the Paris Agreement um, was agreed upon and it really had its effects in real life, I, I would almost say. So, so that is, those are kind of, of societal developments that do also define what's happening inside those halls of, of climate negotiators. Within those holes, uh, and I've witnessed that from, from close by since, is individuals play a decisive role as well. I, I mentioned someone like President Obama, who is, of course, the President of the United States, so always playing an important role, so maybe not that interesting from that perspective. But since 2018, a person like Greta Thunberg, for example, not sitting at the table, but definitely having a great influence because she was the, the face of... Uh, developments in society, pressure mounting and building up from people, simple people, young people, demanding action from politicians and business leaders. Mm. And um, I have felt that pressure inside those halls. I've seen it also the, the, the main politicians referring to her, okay, we cannot ignore this any longer. Th mm -hmm. This is something that we take into account and ultimately to a moment where young people do have a place at the table. And, and that is what I would say, a very important development. And can you be more specific about that? So you were there at a conference um, in 2018? Yes, well, that, that was the, the year that, that she came up. Of course, you, re, you remember her, her history. She was just protesting in front of the, the Swedish parliament alone. Mm. But after, within a year, managed to, to inspire millions of young people across the globe in, in many countries that were also represented at, at those tables. Um, and I remember uh, a politician from a country, and I will not name it, saying we can no longer ignore 
what's going on outside. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting to, to phrase it in, in that way uh, mm -hmm. because he saw it as a nuisance. Uh, we have to do something to get rid of it. Others were also quoting her, and, and I, I think I, I can name those countries, Angela Merkel, for example, saying, okay, young people are demanding action from us. We cannot um, afford to uh, delay any longer. We have to get into action mode. And, and that kind of pressure has really helped to accelerate international action on climate. Still not, not enough, if you ask me, and if you ask me to look back on the past five years, I've seen a lot. And, and really positive developments. But again, if we, we boil it down to the, f to the facts and figures, we see that climate change is still accelerating faster than the action that we put uh, against it as humans. Mm. If I think back, uh, you know, what was also an historic moment, uh, and I think about the Netherlands, I think about this law case, you know, the, the, the climate case, which is relatively goes over the world as a... As a as an example of what impact legal action can have also against established interests such as from Shell, but also the Dutch government. Can you tell a little bit more about how you experienced that from the inside as the Dutch government was facing this climate case? And what, what was that dynamic and how did that impact uh, the view of the Dutch government and therefore also your role? Perhaps we should go back to the uh, the question that we had to debate in university. Is this individual leadership or are these societal developments? Mm -hmm. If you would see political leaders as the elected followers, which, which I think is a very good way of putting it, they kind of feel the pulse of society and see what, what they can actually do. Because those political parties that formed the government in uh, 2017 were just the same political parties that that's governed for, for the decades before in different composition, but still the same. Yeah. So why didn't they do that before? Because the, the facts were known for decades. So, so why all of a sudden more climate action in that coalition agreement? That has to do with developments in society. And one such development was this Urgenda case that you refer to, which is a, a group of citizens that united in this court case and fought this case against government. But just recently, we've also seen that another group did it against a large oil company like Shell. And in fact, if we, we go around the globe, we see over a thousand court cases against co companies, local governments, national governments. That is the, 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 one of the developments in society. And this is the legal tool that is taken out of the toolbox. But there are several others. You also see initiatives in society, citizens forming energy cooperatives or scientists being more vocal about what's going on. But also the media reporting more and more on climate and, and climate-related uh, issues. So those are the developments that politicians are reacting to, mm -hmm. and sometimes because they have to do that because a judge tells them to do it. But I think more broadly, because this is what society is increasingly asking from politicians. We, we cannot afford to wait longer. I think you've talked about that in the past. It's a, it's a good opportunity for advanced economies like the Netherlands to take this opportunity to innovate, right, and to serve a role as it is doing, I think, across the world uh, in terms of water management, in terms of crop management. And uh, the Netherlands has a lot of innovation power. I is that a role for the Netherlands? And in how does that manifest in, in your day-to-day -day work? 
we definitely look for areas where we can lead and often as as the dutch uh, we try to look in, into those sectors where we historically have an edge like agriculture water management so th that is something that we try to do earlier this year we organized an international summit on adaptation in the netherlands and that is um, yeah one field where we think we have to bring something that others could benefit from so to international cooperation in general but also development cooperation climate finance those are the kind of things that that we feel we can contribute including private sector representatives, the financial sector, but also in the field of energy, agriculture. At the same time, we are talking about a transition here that is not only technical by nature. So so that is, of course, what, what many of those developments, they fall in that box of, of technical and advancements and, and innovation. But it's only part of the story. We also have to look at a system change. And that is, of course, much more difficult when you are that system. And that, that's not only the case in the Netherlands, but that goes for all advanced economies. Our economies are built on fossil fuels. They are built on production and products being sold, often in a linear way. So a transition to a economy that is circular by nature, where you, where you shift from fossil fuels to other sources of energy, that is very hard if that is the foundation your society is built upon. Mm. So on the one hand, yes, we do look for opportunities to lead. On the other hand, if that is that is your point of departure, it also makes it hard. And it, there's an, an, a little bit of an inclination to focus on making the current system as it is more sustainable, whereas part of the answer might be saying farewell to that system and build something new. And that is the kind of... of period that we are in at the moment so hence the friction uh, and hence also the difficulties for politicians to actually say to some of the stakeholders of the current system nice to have known you but we, now we move on with someone else yeah. Th that is where we are right can you say a little bit more about that mindset shift that you talk about for instance so you work in the context of a ministry and a government H how do people look at this from the inside and do you see what is helpful to shift a mindset in, in, in internal discussions? I'm involved in international talks, but also I, I see my, my role also as representing those international agreements nationally. So I do engage with many people, including within our government. And what I've experienced over the years is that when I start talking to people about this broader issue, and in whatever field they are, whether it is education or defense or health, in the beginning... They often didn't realize that they could actually play a role in changing to that, that new situation. So just engaging in a conversation, explaining what is going on and pinpointing their own role in that opened many eyes, but also inspired people to make a difference uh, because no one actually gets out of its bed in the morning to to pollute, you know, right. that, that that is not not how we are build especially not people that are active in the public sector they are often there to work on the public good mm -hmm. so it was actually very satisfying to engage with people that said okay you approach me as a professional uh, and you ask me what actually could we do different that is something that is happening more and more often and, and that is rewarding as well to actually engage in a way like that
When you talk about leadership roles, what type of qualities do you think are these days really important to get people to open up, to be cooperative, to change your mindset? How, how do you engage with people or what do you observe in others that is helpful? It, it goes back to those, those human values. And many people are of goodwill. They often just are raised in, in their work, but also in their private life to do the things that we have always done. I don't blame anyone for that. Until, let's say, 10 years ago, I did things like that as well. And, and I never asked myself the question, is this air trip necessary or should I eat meat? But zooming out and seeing the bigger context makes you ask other questions, makes you look at your own role differently. And then you see that actually you have it in you to, to change not only yourself, but also your impact on, on others and on those broader questions. As a professional, this is challenging, but also um, I think very satisfying because you're not, all of a sudden you're not, not looking at doing the same thing day in, day, day in, day out until you retire. No, actually here is a, a real professional challenge. Can I do things differently and, and make an impact? What strikes me still is that we still report in terms of gross domestic product, a lot of economic measures. We don't see so much yet a comparison on hard emission facts. It doesn't seem to be at the same level yet. Would you say there is work to be done in that field? Oh, absolutely. And I think actually our economic theory, uh, again, that's being taught in universities, is not fit for, for the future anymore. What we were taught in, in, in school was, okay, an economy consists of government, of businesses, of consumers, and if you had a more complicated model, we even added the, the other countries to it, so it was an international system. What we never put into that system was what was actually labeled externalities. Economic theory speaks of externalities, and those are the environment, water, also social well-being of other citizens. So we have to come to a much more inclusive way of looking at our economy, put a value on nature, on climate, on biodiversity, and then all of a sudden the, the price of our products might change because now we just leave it to the collective. It's up to us as a society to clean up the mess that, that businesses sometimes leave or that we as, as consumers leave because it's not the whole life cycle of a product that, that businesses take responsibility for. And that new way of looking to a system is necessary and, and more and more academics but also politicians agree that should be the case but there's friction between the short and the long term but also for politicians it's difficult to tell to its citizens all the products that you might find in the shops might become more expensive because that could be a consequence the way we live is actually way too cheap because the pollution is left to the collective yeah so so how does one change that then? Hopefully uh, slowly but gradually by putting a price on carbon to start with, by putting a price on, on other forms of pollution, by taking the citizens um, and the electorate through this process or so do it together and also taking businesses with you in that whole process, convincing them that they have a role to play as well. And what I often do when I talk to businesses, I paint the long-term picture 
And I say, whether you like it or not, this will happen in the near future. So, so the price of pollution will go up. You will have a competitive edge if you move now, if you lower your CO2 footprint or if you lower your environmental footprint in the broader context. If you are using scarce resources in a different way or to try to recycle them, that those are the business models of the future. More and more people actually do see that and act on that. Hopefully that will lead to a situation where the most polluting businesses will just be driven out of the market because they're not competitive anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beyond the kind of economic rationale and financial and self-interest, which I think is important to highlight that, do you feel that it is helpful to take them on also more of a other type of arguments, other line of arguments, share of responsibility or appreciation for nature? Do those arguments help as well? I think it's it's a complete package. So yes, we have to talk about true value in, in economic terms, but also an appreciation of nature is necessary as well. We have become detached from nature, let's face it, especially us in, in, in developed countries. I think it's different in less developed countries, but here many kids don't even know that some food products are not coming from a factory but actually from a farm that is where we have come to so bringing us closer to nature and to agricultural production will definitely make a difference as well and it might even influence voter behavior in the end as well the the greener parties those parties that uh, do value this already become stronger but also and that is i think a development that we referred to earlier on in in this podcast is um, those political parties that that's historically didn't attach too much importance to these issues are now increasingly doing that as well because it is being demanded from them or they see it. Are there leaders in the world or are there examples in the world that, you, that you've come across in your work that you say, wow, that, that's been really inspirational, that's been really helpful, that's been a good case or a good example of leadership in this field? I think known is, for example, uh, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister from New Zealand, uh, who is also looking at this as as one whole systematic change. So uh, not only the the environmental aspects of it, but also connecting it to the social aspects of it. So so that is, I think, a good example. And still in New Zealand, with its big agricultural sector, they are struggling with changing that. So even in, in a country that is having the cap- capabilities to move independently because they are an island far away from everyone else, so, so, so they, they should be able to move faster than most of us. Still, in a society like that, there is a lock-in in the older system. But she's taking the leadership to do that. So I think that's a good example. What I also like as a good example is not a, a politician or, or a, a leader in the policy fields, but... Uh, someone like Kate Rayworth, an economist from the UK, um, who is trying to change her field, um, not with complete new theories, but just saying, okay, we we need to take this into account and and respect the the borders on the one side or on on the social side, socio-economic uh, factors, and on the other side, environmental, biodiversity, and and climate thresholds that we shouldn't cross. And it's interesting to see what a big influence she is having, both within her field, but also outside. She is, for example, advising the city government of Amsterdam, who used her so-called donut economy uh, as a model for their own city budgeting. So that is, that's inspirational to me. 
that also points to this element of collaboration, right? So you cannot do this alone. You have to not just think in abstract terms about emission reduction, but it's also social consequences. So it's a real systemic uh, mindset that is required, that requires collaboration across the board. I, I do find it interesting that you, you mentioned the Prime Minister of New Zealand. If you look at her cabinet, she's really inclusive. So she's uh, included people from the opposition, from people from uh, indigenous uh, backgrounds. And to be really collaborative, connecting kind of way of, of leader. I, and I wonder whether that's something that would be helpful that we try to do this more in leadership in politics, but also in government. Absolutely. I often say that the climate is not left or right. In the beginning, we spoke about the, uh, the polarization that we often see. We should get over that, you know. Also, if you do have a political inclination to the right, uh, look at this issue as very relevant to the economy that you would like to preserve, that you would like to, to be successful in the longer term. Take this broader context into account and, of course, look at it from, from your own ideological background, but still you have to act upon it because we know as a fact that doing nothing will be the, the costly choice. And the same goes for, for the left that that's, might pride itself in advocating for this issue for much longer. Say goodbye to that. This is not your issue anymore. This has to be done collectively. And Jacinda Ardern is living that. Uh, so, so looking at this from, from a whole of society perspective, we see others doing that as well. And that is the era that we step into now. Climate crisis as a defining issue for all decisions that we have to take. Now, I know, Marcel, you're at the end of your term. How do you look back at your own role and, and with what, what kind of sense do you leave this role? At the first climate summit, the first COP I went to was the one in Marrakesh. On the third day, Donald Trump was elected. So all of a sudden, it was like a deflated balloon. The energy was out of the conference. That was the, the period that we, uh, we stepped into. And as climate diplomats, of course, we were in touch, uh, the climate envoys. You have to, to know that there are not too many of our breed. We know each other and, and we connect. And we saw it as our task to keep the momentum going and prevent the Paris Agreement from slipping away from us. And looking back at the past four or five years, we have been able to do that. And actually, we have been able to witness the momentum still being there. And, and what we spoke about earlier, the undercurrent in societies has grown. So people do see this absolutely an issue that we have to act upon. So that is, I think, yeah, the good result of keeping the energy in there and, and, and giving it so much effort over the past couple of years. And I will, would like to illustrate it with one more example is internally within the, the, the diplomatic service of the Netherlands, from the beginning, I said to my colleagues, yes, we do have one climate envoy, but actually you are all climate diplomats. And they looked at me a little bit uh, strange. What does he mean? Uh, so the, the first ambassadors conferences, for example, I went to in 2017. Um, I had to sit in, a, in a, a back room and only a few people that were thinking along the same lines attended the, the, the climate workshop. Now, at the last ambassadors conference, climate was an overarching theme. And this was high on the agenda. The minister spoke about it. The prime minister spoke about it. And if I now just talk to whatever colleague in whatever field, they do see that they, they have a role to play themselves. So my 
initial motto, we are all climate diplomats, has sunk into the organization and, and people do indeed see this as the context in which they operate and, and they have a role to play. So that makes me proud. Marcel, I, I deeply uh, thank you for your uh, very fascinating talk, for sharing these insights with us. Uh, I congratulate you on your work and I wish you all the best in your next uh, position. Maybe climate related or do you know anything about it? Well, my next role will indeed st still be in climate because... I, I, we are all climate diplomats, <laughs> yes. so whatever field I would have chosen, uh, it would have been, been relevant for climate. Yeah. But I'll be active in the field of food security and agriculture, and that will have to be climate relevant, climate smart. And with a growing global population, we know that there will be tension there as well. So we have to uh, definitely act in that field as well. Well, thank you so much. I wish you all the best in your ne next role, and I, I'm deeply grateful for everything you shared. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. When listening to Marcel and Jeroen, I found it remarkable how Marcel made the connection from talking about the impact of longer-term societal trends and also recognized which impact single individuals can have on climate negotiations. His perception of politicians being elected followers who keep a pulse on society and do what they feel is possible, who correspond to the mood of the moment, can point us to the importance of our own actions, consumption habits, and how politics reacts to what is emerging within society. This feels encouraging for anyone who ever wondered what is the point of making our voices heard, speaking up for what is dear to us, or even protesting nonviolently. Marcel's insights on how Greta Thunberg acted as a moral compass and how she really had an influence on leaders like Angela Merkel is quite extraordinary. For this week, I invite you to reflect together with me on this. How do our daily habits, the way we consume, and how we relate to our representatives shape how politics acts in regard of climate action and system change? What is it in our daily life or in our leadership role that we can do to become a climate diplomat and speak up for the environment? These questions lead us to our upcoming episode. Jeroen will be hosting a live panel at COP26 together with Professor Christine Wamsler from Lund University Clara de la Torre, Deputy Director General at DG Klima of the European Commission, and Eva Carlson, CEO of Houdini Sportswear. They will be exploring the question, what leadership qualities are needed the most now? After the panel, Eva from Houdini will help us to explore and go more deeply on these leadership qualities in the context of a sustainable clothing company. If you'd like to start a dialogue or support the Inner Green Deal, please reach out to us via the show notes. Thank you for being with us on the journey to an inner green deal. Makes you look at your own role differently and then you see that actually you have it in you to, to change not only yourself but also your impact on, on others and on those broader questions.